So today on this Ascension Sunday, we conclude our series on the life of the prophet Elijah. That seems appropriate, providential that on the Ascension Sunday we're looking at Elijah's being taken up into heaven on chariots of fire in a whirlwind. Uh, Elijah's departure, which is very unusual in Scripture, I can think of only Enoch who avoided physical death like Elijah did. But Elijah's departure was as strange as his life. It felt very, as the kids say, on brand for Elijah. It felt very much like, well, yeah, that's, that's what's going to happen with Elijah, of course. This prophet of fire is going to just disappear into heaven in, in a whirlwind of fire. Um, that made me think of uh, the famous artist Salvador Dali who would show up to a lecture in a Rolls Royce full of cauliflower. And nobody would bat an eye because that's Dali and that's what he does, you know. So I imagine the same thing with Elijah being taken up to heaven and everybody just kind of says, well, yeah, that's the prophet of fire. That's how it was always going to end with him. Now, of course, this passage is not just about the end of Elijah's ministry. It describes a, a transition, a ministry transition from Elijah to Elisha. Now, we're going to end our series here with the end of Elijah's life and ministry, but certainly there's a continuation of this whole, um, whole ministry and whole endeavor. And so, uh, at some point, we will do a, a series on Elisha, and we will see all the things that God has done through him, but we, we see in our passage this transition. Elijah is going away, but Elisha is coming into his own and taking up his mantle. Maybe it's because of this passage, which is clearly about this transition and legacy. Maybe it's because I went to two college graduations the last two weekends and one of them was at my alma mater at Moody Bible Institute. I, I've been thinking a lot about legacy on my mind is this, this idea of, uh, you know, how do we live in a way that, that we can leave something behind, something, something that goes beyond our earthly life? How can I live in a way that I can contribute to something lasting and enduring beyond my own direct influence on people? And so as we consider the end of Elijah's life and ministry, I, I think this is a good passage for us to consider our own legacies. I'd like us to notice three commitments that influence the future beyond Elijah's earthly life. Three commitments. The first one I think may surprise you. The second one should be familiar to you because we talk about it a lot. And the third one is the most important commitment of the three. So let's start with the first, I think, surprising commitment, which is investing in institutions. Anybody surprised at that? Yes. Okay, good. I want to show you something from this passage that is often missed here, okay? Why does Elijah and Elisha travel from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan this whole passage is them walking around, right? Why are they going to those specific places? Well, the answer is that they're visiting specific prophetic 
communities. Notice that at every place, there's a group of prophets that comes and talks to them. They're a little maybe hesitant to talk to Elijah himself, but they're talking to Elisha. And they're saying, you know, the Lord has revealed to all of us that this is the day when Elijah is going to be taken up. You know about that, Elisha? And Elisha says, yeah, be quiet. Everybody knows about that. We're just waiting for that to happen. And then they go to another place, right? And exact same conversation happens there. So there's these schools of the prophets that are set up at different towns in Israel that Elijah is visiting, I think deliberately, partly to say goodbye, but partly to establish Elisha as the new leader who will take up the mantle after him. Now, I think this, this when you have the 50, soul, the 50 prophets come in in one of those places, and I think the 50 is important because in the previous chapter, we have the 50 soldiers come into Elijah three times. So there seems to be this allusion to organization, almost like a military-like organization of the prophets. They seem to travel by fifties. And then this phrase, the sons of the prophets, it doesn't mean that these are children, physical children of other prophets. It just means that they're members of this prophetic profession. It's like a guild. It's like a union. It's like an organization here. And they belong to these schools. They're being trained up to take up prophetic ministry in Israel. They're like, they're like seminaries. They're like training centers. Now, we know there's at least several of them because, because Elijah goes to each place and they meet with him and, and there's communication. There's sort of the farewell address potentially that may be happening here. So apparently, in the latter part of his ministry, Elijah founded or organized or joined and certainly led several institutions designed to amplify the prophetic witness in Israel. Now, you may remember in 1 Kings 19, when at the, maybe perhaps the lowest point of Elijah's life, he is complaining to the Lord and he's saying, I am the only one left. There's nobody else faithful in Israel. I'm the only one. And remember what the Lord tells him. It doesn't, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 faithful people who have never bowed their knee to Baal and they've never kissed Baal's mouth. They are faithful people. And he says, by the way, I'm already prepared a successor for you. You're not the only one. It doesn't depend on you only. There are other people. And I think that changed Elijah. Now, I'm speculating here a little bit, just a little bit. I think that's what turned his ministry towards more organization and building institutions and recruiting other people and strengthening them to prepare them for the future ministry past his time. Because in 1 Kings 19, he already knows that his days are numbered. God has already prepared his successor. And so I think he uses those years to establish these schools of the prophets. And as you read the Bible, you will see that those things are revealed to us again and again. There's other examples of the prophets, groups of prophets doing ministry. Not a, it's not a new idea, but he seems to be focused on that in the latter part of his ministry. Now, it may be surprising to think of Elijah as a supporter of organized religion, but it's true. At this point in his life, he's no longer a solitary prophet. 
He is investing in other people. He is building something that will outlast him. Now, there's a legacy that's being shaped here, a legacy of a prophet that has led a strange life and can easily be dismissed as sort of just this, you know, unusual, once in a hundred years kind of a person, right? And then he was, of course. But that energy, that call from God, those ministry ambitions are actually now passed on, yes, to Elisha, but also to all these other prophets that are being trained up for the ministry. Now, we live in a time when organized religion is not something that is desired or respected. In fact, even many Christians, many spiritual people will say, well, I am spiritual, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, I just don't do any of this organized religion stuff. But in fact, the whole Bible, including Elijah in our text, but the whole Bible promotes organized religion. The Bible knows, because the Bible is written by God himself who knows us, the Bible knows that humanity cannot flourish without healthy institutions. Our society, we need healthy institutions. We actually can't prosper. We can't live in harmony. We can't pursue the goals that God has given us without building and sustaining healthy institutions. Now, what is an institution? Yuval Levin, one of, he's a conservative writer, he says, institutions are durable forms of our common life, the frameworks and structures of what we do together. Durable forms of our common life. That means that things that endure, things that function even when people in, a, in them change, their frameworks and structures of what we do together, they are necessary for our life together. And human institutions include family and marriage, schools, the military, yes, the church, the government, law enforcement, newspapers, hospitals. All those things are important and essential for our society to work. And the healthier those institutions are, the healthier our society is. Now, each institution develops its own distinctive culture. Each institution has certain rules and roles. And I'm sure in those schools of the prophets, it was set up a certain way. I'm sure the prophets from Gilgal, uh, new prophets from Bethel, maybe there was a healthy rivalry between the two, I'm not sure. But I'm sure they were different. I'm sure their ministries were different. I'm sure their cultures were slightly different. I'm sure they had different people in charge, different people in serving roles. Those things had to be organized. They had to be structured in some way. I don't mean oppressive organization. I don't mean useless organization, but a healthy structure. Institutions each develop in a certain way, and they maintain a certain culture. But most importantly, institutions have the ability to shape a person and influence generations. I think Elijah knew that, that he needed to invest in institutions so that his ministry can continue. 
beyond his generation. I think he intentionally invested his time in these schools of the prophets in Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And they became part of his legacy. It's something that survived his departure. Now, I know, I mean, I'm talking about institutions, and I know we live in a culture where trust in institutions is historically low. A recent Gallup survey reported that average confidence across all American institutions is at a new low of 27%. So if you take all institutions across the board, government, police, media, all of that, church, and, and you take the average level of people who have great confidence in all those institutions, the average is 27%. I mean, that's very, very low. And this is the lowest that it's been in America. There is a spirit of anti-institutionalism in the air. And the church is affected by that because we're, we breathe the same air. We too give into that anti-institutionalist kind of rhetoric and behavior. Now, it's interesting that in that survey, only 7% of Americans, now I want you to hear that number, 7% of Americans have great confidence in Congress. 7%. I mean, I, I think that's, that's disturbing. I mean, that's scary. 7% of the country has great confidence in Congress. But... 64% have great confidence in the military. 64% trust the military. 7% trust Congress. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that the military is much healthier than Congress. Now, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial, and please understand the spirit in which I say these things. Congress has become a platform for self-promotion and increase of personal influence. But the military is still largely a shaping institution. Congress is no longer a shaping institution. It doesn't form people. People come to Congress and do things from that platform. But the military changes the person. And many of you who have served have benefited from that you became different because of your time in the military. When a person gets elected to Congress, they seek to change it. This is how you get elected. I'm going to come. I'm going to bring order. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to change the culture, right? That's, that's the, the election rhetoric. But when a person goes into the military, the military seeks to change them. You conform and benefit from the institution. Unhealthy institutions are at their core performative. They just give you a platform to do what you want to do. But healthy institutions are formative. My last thing on Congress and the military, okay? When you meet somebody and somebody says, he's a congressman or she's a congresswoman, what do you think about them? How would you assess who they are? It's very difficult. They may be honest. They may not be. They may be driven. They may not be. They may care about others. They may not. You actually don't really know 
what that, kind, what that person is. But if you meet somebody from the military, right, and somebody says, he's a Navy man, I think there's a lot of things you learn right away from that person, right? Because of the institution that formed them and that shaped them. This is what a healthy institution does. I was, uh, as I mentioned last weekend, I was at graduation at my alma mater at Moody. So Zoya, my second daughter, daughter's fiance, graduated. So we were there for him with his family. And, and it was a great time, very nostalgic for me, of course. You know, you come back to the school that you came from, to the school D.L. Moody founded, and you sang the song, and, and it's wonderful. You know, it's a very good experience. But that made me think of when I started in in my pastorate of the church in Chicago many years ago now, there was an old, older man in our church who's been in that church, you know, through all the pastors. <laughs> you know, he's, he was the, the keeper of the institution in that, in that church. And I remember when I was candidating to, for that church, you know, he was really excited that I was from Moody, that I graduated from Moody. And he said, you're a Moody man. And I'd never heard that before. And I thought, what does that mean? But that means I'm a person who was shaped, right? I was shaped by Moody Bible Institute, and Carl, the, the, person, the elder at the church, expected that I would exhibit certain traits, right? Like, I trusted the authority of Scripture. I was waiting for the return of Christ. I was focused on missions and ministry. Um, I was about the kingdom of God. Those things that were true of Moody as an institution, Carl expected that they would be true of me because I was a Moody man. Now, why did he think that? Because he assumed that Moody was a healthy institution. And healthy institutions shape people. And so I consider it a great compliment for somebody to say, well, you're a Moody man, or you're a Trinity man, whatever. You are part of that institution, or you're a Chatham man, right? It should say something about the person as far as the institution they come from or they belong to. And so I think Elijah is invested in these schools of the prophets because these institutions were supposed to produce many more prophets for Israel. They were supposed to shape people. They were supposed to take these recovering Baal worshipers who were afraid to go against the king and, and make them and forge them into Elijah-like faithful truth speakers. That's where it was supposed to happen in those places and at the seminary at Bethel, at the seminary in Gilgal, like those places were supposed to shape this new generation of, of, of prophets for Israel because Israel needed more prophets. And Elijah was about to depart. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I think this has great significance for us today. So let me make two points of application, one general and one very, very specific. The general point is this. We must seek to restore the health of institutions. Just in general. We, as people who live in this culture today, must seek to restore the health of institutions. And as our institutions get healthier, the confidence and trust in those institutions will grow. Now remember, we're at an all-time low. 7%. I mean... And so whatever we do is going to help us. It's going to restore faith in the institutions, which is essential for our culture to live in a healthy way. So if you 
find yourself now as part of an institution, whether it's through your career or, or your hobby or whatever, be the insider that seeks to support it and make it healthier and remind that institution of its very own commitments and foundations. God may use you wherever you are, wherever He's placed you, to build it up and to restore it. And for those of us who may not be naturally connected to an institution, maybe this is a time for you to join. Time for you to belong to something, to belong to an organization, to belong to a structure, and bring your healthy Christian perspective there and support it. But the key is to function as an insider, not an outside reformer, but as an insider, somebody who can work from within. And while many institutions are struggling, we, we can't give up on participating in them. We can't just check out. I mean, I'm sure Elijah was tremendously frustrated with the way things were going in Israel. And yet he committed himself to raise up this new generation, Elisha and others, who would promote the faith in the pagan Israel. Institutions are essential to human flourishing. Listen to Andy Crouch. He says, we should be neither incurable romantics nor incurable cynics about our institutions. But at their best, they make possible experiences that give human beings the closest taste we ever get to the glory that waits to be revealed fully in God's very good creation. The healthiest institutions, indeed, make it possible to exercise even terrifying amounts of power without becoming captive to idolatry and injustice because they surround those unique power bearers with artifacts, arenas, rules, and image bearers in other roles who hold them accountable to their responsibility for comprehensive flourishing, not private thriving. So that's my call to all of us. Be an institutional kind of person. Invest in institutions. And more specifically, we must embrace the local church as an institution. Now, I know how counter-cultural counter and counterintuitive this sounds today. But my call to all of us here at Chatham is to embrace the local church, our church, as an institution. Our annual meeting is coming up, and there is nothing more institutional in the life of the church than the annual meeting, right? Right? It's a business meeting. We look through our budget. We vote on various officers of the church. We discuss numbers and ideas and ministries. We hear reports. I mean, all that stuff is very institutional at its core. And for many of us, we think, well, this is just an unfortunate necessity to be endured, right? I really like about a lot of other things about the church, and I'm a member. I will be there. I will be faithful, I'll make myself go, and I will try to stay awake, and I will vote the right way, and I will pay attention to the numbers at least two minutes into Matt's presentation. <laughs> I will do that because I'm a faithful follower of Christ, and I will do it for Him. So the idea is that it's just a necessity to be overcome, to be endured. 
But if you look at the church as an institution to begin with, what if it is that something that's really valuable that already is built in here? Is it possible that these things like budgets and votes and signing in and becoming a member and having a church calendar, is it possible that these things are actually so valuable as to provide generational influence? Leaders come and go, by the way. Most of you will probably have another pastor here, you know, at some point. Now, I'm not leaving. I'm just saying think that's how things go, right? But the culture of Chatham, the institutional commitments, the institutional practices of Chatham will outlive me and the next pastor and maybe the next. There's something that is precious about the budget, about the officers, the elders, and the deacons, about the nursery schedule. Those are actually precious things that God uses to further His influence. Listen to me. Church as a ministry can shape a person. It can do that. But church as an institution can shape generations. Do you see the difference? You can go to any ministry or you can hear a great talk or you can hear a great song and you can be changed, of course. But unless you're a part of an organization, an institution, or some kind of a movement, something that's organized in some way, yes, organized religion, yes. Unless that happens, your generations may not be affected at all. So the church, the local church, is set up in the New Testament in a way to have the influence go beyond a particular leader, beyond a particular generation. Now, it used to be that people were described as churchmen and churchwomen. I would love to have that in my obituary. He was a churchman. I think that would be one of the greatest compliments I could receive, that I was committed to the institution of the church. I was committed to the local church. Now, we don't say that anymore because... That's not true in most cases anymore. But what if you embrace the church as a formative institution, not a platform for your personal influence or even personal growth or personal performance, but what if you embrace the church as a formative institution that can shape you and that can possibly shape your children and their children? Be an insider who can ensure the health of our church so we can help keep it healthy for future generations. One of the things that attracted me to Chatham, and my wife and I talked a lot about that as we were considering moving here eight years ago, we saw that it was an intergenerational church, that there were people of various ages at Chatham, from babies, right, to mature Christians. We had the whole, and we have the whole spectrum. I mean, that is not usual, by the way. It's much easier to have a church that is designed to serve one generation. It's difficult to have a church that's intergenerational. But it is glorious to have a church like this, because we see God's faithfulness through generations. We see how a new generation comes in, and they take on the culture of the other generations. 
And they are shaped by this hundred-year record of God's faithfulness. In the Bible, God is often introduced as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Not just one. Not just the God of Abraham, but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the three generations of God's faithfulness. And here at Chatham, we see generations affected by the gospel through the institution, in the institution of our church. And so here, we know that our Lord is the God of Karen and Josh and Olivia. That's our God. The God of Denny and Megan and Zion. The God of Willow and Christy and Claire. We have these generations in the church. What a blessing. What a gift from God. So let's harness it. Let's protect it. Let's nourish it. Let's promote it. Let's make sure that the next generation that comes in, and by the way, lots of babies in the church, right? Let's make sure they know they are now fitting into this long line of God's faithfulness and the very institution of the church, because they, some of them will be at the annual meeting tonight, okay? Let's train them upright. That's because we, we couldn't set up child care, so that's an announcement. But, but bring your babies in. Let them experience this intergenerational faithfulness of God. For this legacy to remain, the legacy of Chatham, we must embrace our church as a God-given institution. And that was just point number one. I'm sorry, I, I'm going to go quick the last two points, okay? But I, I didn't preach the last two Sundays, so I'm a little rustic. Okay, second point, quickly. The second commitment that Elijah makes to ensure his legacy, and you don't have to be at the end of your life to do that. You, we actually do it throughout our lives, and we evaluate as we go. But this generational influence is seen as in Elijah's second commitment, which is his relationship with Elisha. It's a commitment to make disciples. Elijah is very clearly Elisha's spiritual parent. In fact, Elisha calls him my father. He's his mentor. He's his leader. He's his parent. This is this is the commitment in Elijah's life to make disciples. Now, of course, the classic description of this commitment in the New Testament is found in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking to his protege Timothy, whom he was discipling and mentoring, and he says, You then, my child, notice parental language, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul, like Elijah, is invested in someone else who would then invest in others who would then invest in others. There's a generational call to discipleship. I am not only going to raise up somebody who will take up my mantle, but they will then pass on their mantle to someone else, and they will be expected to do the same. And even as Elijah is ready to go up to heaven, he continues to disciple Elisha. This whole passage is too drawn out, right, for the dramatic event. There's so much more happening here to tell us about Elijah's legacy, to tell us about his life. And we see that he, Elisha, keeps following Elijah, and Elijah is teaching Elisha even as he is about to be 
taken up. For example, he teaches Elisha about spiritual commitment. Now in verses 2, 4, and 6, Elijah tells him to leave him. He says, don't follow me. Stop following me. And Elisha persists in following Elijah. What kind of game are they playing here is the question, right? What's all this, you know, leave me, I will never leave you. As long as the Lord lives, as long as you live, I will always be with you. What is happening here? Elijah is testing Elisha's commitment and reminding him about this, this single focus that he needs to have in following the Lord. Just as he's been following Elijah, now that Elijah's going to be gone, he says, keep this commitment. Keep this spiritual commitment to the Lord. Now, this is part of Elisha's story. When Elijah called Elisha in 1 Kings 19, Elisha said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Remember that? And of course, of course, Elijah demands a different kind of commitment. And so it's a reminder to Elisha. Another example would be that Elijah is, is teaching him about spiritual ambition. In verse 9, for example, we have, they, they cross the Jordan, and Elijah says to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. Now, that's a challenge, right? Ask me something. God is going to give you something, but you need to ask me. He's, he's, he's trying to stir up his ambition. And Elisha, and Elisha says, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. I mean, what a great, ambitious demand, right? Now, what is he asking for? He's asking to be the one successor, the firstborn son to Elijah. He's asking to be the leader of the prophetic ministry in Israel. This is a big ask. But I think Elijah knows that's what Elisha is going to do, and he wants him to verbalize. He wants him to say it. He wants him to ask, as Elijah then says, a hard thing, right? He says, you've asked for a hard thing. But he wants him to ask it. There is spiritual ambition that's required of the disciples of Jesus. And Elijah is teaching him that, even as he's about to be taken up. And then the last example is he's teaching him spiritual vision. In verse 10, Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Again, what is he doing here? He's saying you need to see the glory. Your eyes need to be open to what God is doing. You need to look through your spiritual eyes to be the kind of minister God wants you to be. He says you need to see me taken up. You can't leave now just because you think you're my successor. You need to be here. You need to see what the Lord does. And he's training him up in spiritual discernment, spiritual vision. He wants him to be focused on the glory of God. And by the way, that happens later in Elisha's story. You remember that story where he's, they're surrounded in Samaria and the servant says, we're doomed. And Elisha says, the Lord is going to reveal to you. And the servant sees the hosts of heaven, right? God's army surrounding and protecting the city. Now, where did he learn to do that? He learned it from Elijah. Elijah trained him to see the invisible things, to live by faith, to know that God is doing things we cannot see and we can easily miss. 
when I was at the graduation at Moody, Maverick, Zoya's fiance, was graduating, and Maverick's family was there, of course. Spent a lot of good time with Nana, good times. And then Maverick's dad, this is an inside joke for Jillian, I'm sorry. Maverick's dad was there, and he's very proud of his son, of course. And just as Maverick is, is walking across the stage and receiving his diploma, his dad says, that's my boy, very loud, you know. That's my boy. Maverick claims he didn't hear him, but I think, I think he did. We all, we all heard him, for sure. And I think, what a, what a proud parent. And I wonder that as we, we read the rest of this passage, where, uh, where Elisha is taking up the mantle of Elijah in verses 13 and 14, he takes up the cloak, mantle is the cloak, it's the same word. And then, and then he takes it and he, he strikes the Jordan, right? And water is parted. I wonder if it's that, it's that moment that Elijah says, that's my boy. I've trained him up well, and now he's doing what I was doing, what God wants him to do. What a proud moment for a spiritual mentor. And so who's your boy? Who's your girl? Who is it that you are training up so they can train up others? Who is it that you are discipling and you are celebrating these victories in their lives? That you are training up to have this spiritual commitment to follow Christ no matter what, to discern spiritual reality, to ask for a hard thing and get it. Who is it in your life that you are investing in? Have you intentionally taken your place in God's redemptive work through the generations? Our God is the God of someone else who passed their faith on to us. And our God will become the God of those we pass our faith to. It's interesting that Elijah, before he strikes the water, right? He says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Because the very understanding of God, Elijah's walk with God, Elijah's experience with God has been passed on to Elisha. So if in this scenario you are the Elijah, who is your Elisha? And then finally and very briefly before we take communion, but very, very importantly, there's a third commitment. And the third commitment is knowing God. It's investing in institutions, it's making disciples, and it's knowing God. That's the most obvious and, ob and the most important commitment affecting the future of Elijah. It's his relationship with God himself. Elijah lived in relationship with his God. Elijah has experienced his sovereign direction. I mean, our, our passage starts with when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. <laughs> God is making decisions for Elijah's life, and Elijah is going along. Elijah is accepting God's will. He's experienced God's gracious support and very difficult turns of his life, and the magnificent victories in Mount Carmel. I mean, all those things, all of that happened because Elijah knew God. He walked with him. How do you secure your legacy? How do you even know what your legacy should be? Well, God knows. God knows, and if you know God, he will reveal it, and he will accomplish it. Elijah here gets his reward. He is finally able to be with his God forever. 
His future is secure. His legacy is secure because God is going to be there with him. He's in the present, and he will be there in the future. Now let's end on this. How do you know God? And maybe I've said enough to make you think about your legacy. Maybe I've said enough to make you consider your life and how well you live in it and how much of that will remain after you are done with your earthly existence. The main question is, do you know him and how do you know him? How do you know God? The biblical answer is through Christ. That's the only way to know God because he reveals God to us. He is the person that is revealing God to us. We know God because we know Christ. You follow Christ into the knowledge and experience of God. And so how can you be confident in your future? How can you be confident that all God's promises are going to be kept? Because of Christ. Because of His cross, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension. You can be confident that you will go beyond the Jordan and you will be with your God forever because Jesus has made that journey before you. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. Jesus suffered for you. Jesus rose again to give you a new life. Jesus has ascended and he is now interceding for you, making sure that you will receive the reward of your faith that all God's promises will come true. It's because of His ambition. Because Jesus asked the Father for a hard thing, and the Father granted it to Him. It's because of Jesus' commitment. Jesus never wavered. He was set to save you. And He did it. And nothing deterred Him from saving you. It's because of His spiritual vision. Jesus knew what was going to be on the other side. For the joy that was set before him, he endured for you. Because he could see, see, he could see the church. He could see the new heaven and the new earth. He could see God's glory. He could see the chariots of fire and, the, and God's armies of heaven. And when he returns, when Jesus returns, we will be with him in the most healthy institution of God's kingdom. And all the generations will come together and we will be with him forever, enjoying the eternal life in his presence, in his renewed creation. Uh, this past week, Tim Keller passed. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York City. And just to put all my cards on the table, probably the most influential modern thinker in my life. Probably learned the most from him that I've learned from anybody else that I read or listened to. This is the testimony of his passing. He finished well. He fought the fight, he ran the race, and he went into the presence of the Lord after several years of battling cancer. His son reported... Dad waited until he was alone with Mom. She kissed him on the forehead and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. This is what Tim Keller said before he died. There is no downside 
for me leaving. Not in the slightest. There's no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. When you know that your legacy is secure, when you have done what the Lord has given you to do, when you know where your future is, you know that the Lord is waiting for you, it's okay to go beyond the Jordan. We don't need to hold on to this earthly life. God will take us in his timing, and the reward is great. Do you know God? That's what God does. Do you know him in Christ?